Bibles and turn to 1 John. We want to talk about 1 John tonight. We have a good number of things we want to discuss with you. First time I've used this little mic in a while, so if it doesn't sound quite right, I'm not accustomed to it, and Brother Don uh, has not uh, regulated this one some time. It may be that the battery is a little weak. You may have to uh, turn the volume up too high, I think, when this battery starts playing out that uh, he has to turn his volume up over there too high, and uh, it sounds like I'm in a well. Sister Grant said, the Daniel the lion's den. Uh, Brother Rich said, sound like you're in the doghouse. <laughs> so, <clears throat> one's like the other, you know. First John, the second chapter. We're going to be able to do it, Brother Don. He's going to try. Good to see all of you here. We just got such a lovely group of people here. The Lord really did move, didn't he? I'll tell you. Brother Felix was up here just leading you in worship. and You were responding. and Praise God. I really appreciate a, a man who will stand up here and just worship himself. I'd like to know, though, Brother Felix, what is the white side of my finger? <laughs> now, I couldn't figure that one out, see? You know, he says, <laughs> he doesn't have a white side either, he says. <laughs> oh, the lighter side, okay. Because, well, you know, I believe my finger is as light on one side as the other side. <laughs> Oh, praise God. Well, people have more fun than anybody. 1 John 2, 15. John says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And I'd like to preach from verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And I'd like to preach tonight. On the subject, the love that God hates. The love that God hates. And of course, this is the love of the world. And you may be seated. First John is a general epistle. And we use the term general epistle while it may be written to a particular father and his children, or his little children, Uh, it basically deals with two things, the believer and his love for the brotherhood 
and the believer and his love for the world. And it gives us the proper balance, the proper equation. Now, the word love is found throughout 1 John. And we know that that God, in essence, is love. The Bible tells us that, that God is love. We find in 1 John, the fourth chapter, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this word love is such a powerful, powerful word as it is used here in 1 John. There is a, a few things that you develop a real appetite for as you grow older. And I use the term as you grow older. It seems that that a person's life is progressive. If you are a bad individual, the older you get, the worse you get. And if you are a, a Christian, the older you get, the better you get. And it even appears by a few phrases found in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, that even when you enter into eternity, he that is righteous or holy continues to be holy still. And he that is filthy are unclean, continues to be filthy or unclean still. And so life is a progressive thing. That if you are good and kind, and God has baptized you with the love that you need, then as you get older and older and older, you get better and better and better. But if in the event, you are not blessed with love, but you are cursed with a curse of death and hatred and sin. As you get older, you get more mature in the things of iniquity. They begin to corrupt you, and uh, it becomes a part of your nature. Now, this is something that Christians especially need to understand because there are a lot of so-called Christians that really don't know how to love. And they don't know how to be kind. I've gone into restaurants in different cities where uh, Christians were there. And I've heard them talk to the waitress and the waiters and, and the hostess and various individuals who would be serving them. And they just seem to not know how to be kind. I have seen Christians preach on street corners. And they did not know how to be nice. It seems that all they knew how to do was to be real dogmatic and nasty about everything. You will find in the operation of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul outlines spiritual gifts and uh, makes it very, very plain as to what they are and, and uh, so forth. And then, of course, 1 Corinthians 13, he speaks of, of charity. Now he ends chapter 12 by saying, But covet 
earnestly the best gifts, yet show I unto you a more excellent way. Now that simply means that uh, that as much as spiritual gifts are needed, as much as they edify the body of Christ, as much as they build up the body of Christ, and that's a purpose for spiritual gifts, there is a force that is in continual operation that will edify the body of Christ more than spiritual gifts. See, spiritual gifts, even though they are resident in Christians and they're used upon special occasions for different purposes, love is in operation 24 hours a day in the body of Christ on a continual basis. And so as a result, he speaks of this as being a more excellent way. Now, doesn't mean that you should disregard spiritual gifts, because if you've got something as great as love that's in a congregation, and then you put the, the icing, so, so to speak, on the pie or the cake with spiritual gifts, you have a real dynamic, sweet uh, uh, product that, that people... Uh, will will really like and really need. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. And so when we get into chapter 13, he said, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass or tinkling cymbal. Basically what he's saying is that, that all spiritual gifts, regardless of how powerful, regardless of how thorough they are, that, that love is the, the operation, or the basis, rather, upon which they are to be operated. Love is the vehicle that transports the, the doctrine that's proclaimed in the Bible to the world. Now, our love does not start right with the world, but our love starts with each other. You can't go out and love the world if you can't have love inside of the, the body of Christ. And that's basically what First uh, John is dealing with. It speaks of our, our, the believer and his love for each other. And then, of course, it speaks of the believer and his love for the world, of which uh, he prohibits. Now, what I'd like to do is just call your attention to a few things. Now, if you would turn with me to John, the fourth chapter, First John, pardon me, fourth chapter, verse 8. We want to read once again the, the scripture that, that we read before. Now, he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Now, the Bible says that if you, if you don't love, you don't know God. There is no possible way that you can know God if you do not Love. Now, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is just talk about the children of God as they live together in the body of Christ. So if you will uh, take a look at uh, the third chapter of First John, which is uh, the whole book, if you have never read it, I I recommend that you read the whole book. It's such a powerful, powerful book. I think in the few short uh, passages, or few short chapters, rather, that we have here, we have more passages dealing with some 
of the basic fundamentals of Christian living than any other book in the whole Bible. Uh, 1 John 3, verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, and of course he speaks of Cain, who destroyed his brother. He killed his brother. He was a murderer. Now, verse 15, Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, so ought we to lay down our life for the brethren. John 3.16, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. 1 John 3.16, another passage of Scripture that speaks of love, very kindred in its tenor, to John 3.16, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, so ought we to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hateth his brother, or pardon me, whosoever hath this world's goods, good, and seeth his brother hath need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now, as I have spoken so many times from the epistle of James concerning uh, a true test of love, and James speaks of love or faith, pardon me, without works, John speaks of love and uh, how we can really tell if we if we love our brethren the way that we ought to. And what he says is, uh, we, we have of this earth's goods, and we see a brother who has a need, and then we shut up our bowels of compassion. That simply means we see him, and uh, we just uh, kind of ignore the need that he has. Now, uh, he goes on to say, My little children, let us not love in word, Neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. The true test of your love for your brother is certainly not going up to a brother and saying, I love you. That may be important. It may be okay in many, many cases and left alone in some cases. But nevertheless, he said, that's really not enough in certain situations. When you see a man who has a need and you have of this life's goods and you shut up your bowels of compassion, how can you say the love of God is in you? He said, it's just not there. And hereby we know that we're in the truth, and shall assure our hearts before Him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart, and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. Now what he is basically saying is that, Hey, wait a minute. You say that you love your brother. There is a test of true brotherly love. And that is if you see a brother or a sister who has a need and you have of this world's goods and you don't go and help that brother and you don't go and show kindness to that brother He says, you make void the love of God regardless of what your claim to it is. You can go up to him and say, I love you a thousand times. But he says, if you have not helped this brother, 
He said, you really don't love this brother at all. Now, how would you accept the love of God if you were always hurting all of your life and God never shined a blessing upon you? And you just went through trouble and trial and tribulation. And every time you prayed and asked God to help you, God just turned his head and he ignored you. And, and he just kept ignoring you. And all of a sudden, on some long fast that you were engaged in, the Lord spoke to you and said, Well, this is just the way I am. And that's the way I've always been. And even though you have a need, I'm not about to help you because... You need to learn to just make it on your own. Now, you never heard of that happening. No. You see, God is a God that does indeed like to do good things for people. And He continues over and over and over and over and over and over to do good things for People. Now, so there is a love that God loves. When God looks down and sees you loving people, He loves that kind of love. And this is the vernacular that is proclaimed in this passage of Scripture. To stop by the wayside and help somebody. To help a brother who is in need. To bring groceries to someone who is hungry. To stop and help somebody that uh, you know uh, is in trouble. And, of course, there are other helps that you can offer outside of monetary help. There, there is a love and a compassion that you can show toward each other. Maybe a brother or sister who is sick and you visit them and you pray with them and, 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 and you give them the encouragement that they, they, they need. Now, you know, true to life, if you don't have anything to give them, uh, it's fine then to go up and say, well, I just really love you and I'm praying for you and I trust and pray that everything will indeed be okay. So there, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that if you don't have anything. But if you have something and you are not willing to share, then he says the love of God's not in you. I don't care how much you say it's in you, it is not in you. And I have found that one thing that's happening among God's people, more and more and more they are coming to an awareness that it is more blessed to give than to receive. And I'm seeing this. In fact, I'm going various places preaching to people talking to people, and more and more and more, people are coming up and expressing to me, hey, Brother Grant, I have found in my own experience a real equation that is really doing the job for me. What is that equation? Well, if I give, I get. However, the blessing is not in the getting, but the blessing is in the giving. My heart has been so overjoyed and so thrilled and, of course, the key verse found in this is that you do all these things that your joy may be complete. That's what John says in this short epistle, that your joy may be complete. And why do you help somebody? Because that your joy may be complete. Why do you give sometimes, even when it may put you in a hardship uh, a situation? Why do you do it? That your joy may be complete. Why do you keep serving God and, and loving God and loving the brotherhood that your joy may be complete? 
And you're talking about a measure of joy that comes. Let's put it this way. What if all of a sudden I stepped down from behind this pulpit and walked out to you and you were really in need. I'm really in need. And I walked up to you and asked you how much money you needed. And maybe you told me $300. And I just opened my wallet and gave you 300 You think you'd be happy? You know you would be happy. In fact, some of you don't really have that many needs. But if I walked down and gave you $300 without any idea as to what you would spend it on, you'd be happy, wouldn't you? Sure you would. Now, the Bible says it's more blessed to do what? To give than to receive. The true joy is not in getting, but it's in giving. You know, sometimes our nature, because... The, the old robe of flesh that we wear it is very worldly and greedy. Uh, we don't see that all, all together. Because, you see, we measure joy by how much we jump up and down and leap and shout and, and this type thing. Isn't that right? And that's the reason why sometimes we mistake love. We, we think that love is telling I love you, Brother Rich. I really love you. I really love you. And we'll go away and, and we say, now, I really love him. John says, oh, wait a minute. The test is not in telling, but the test is in doing. See, that, that real love is not expressed only by I love you, Brother Rich. But real love is when you see this brother in a need, you go to him and say, you're in a need. God has blessed me, and I, in turn, want to help you. And I, in turn, want to bless you. And you open your wallet or open your checkbook, and you help this brother. Now, that's not the system of the world. You see, the system of the world is, you know, what's yours is mine, and what's mine is mine. <clears throat> Isn't that right? Read the parable of the Good Samaritan. There were two individuals that crossed on the other side of the street. They were blessed individuals by God, and they just turned their nose right up toward the clouds, and they said, what is mine is mine indeed. But you see, the Samaritan who saw this man in a need, he crossed over. He went out of his way to take this man who had been robbed and beaten and afflicted with punishment and took him and put him upon his horse and took him down to the local motel and left him there and bandaged up all of his wounds. And then he gave him some money to spend and he told the innkeeper, he said, now when this man gets well enough to leave this place, he said, uh, whatever the bill is, don't give it to him. I'm coming back through here and I will pay the bill myself. Now the Samaritan looked at it like this. What is mine is thine. Why? Because this man had a need. And he said, now that is the true test of love. Let me tell you something. If the church has ever entered into an era of apostolic living, we need to do it now. Jesus said, a sign to the world that proves that you are my disciples is this, that you love 
one another. Now that doesn't mean that you just go around and you're happy and vivacious and you're shaking hands and you say, I love you. Do you know that loyalty can never be proved except in adversity? It cannot be proved except in adversity. You may say, oh, I don't know about that, Brother Grant. I have come to the conclusion that loyalty cannot be proved except in adversity. If you're doing what you're doing simply because that it's convenient, you may be loyal in that particular case, but the true test comes only in adverse situations. And love cannot be proved except in crucial periods of adversity. You may love an individual, but God will allow situations to come by in which that love is really proven. And this is the reason why that quite often in our world system, you'll find maybe a husband or a wife that is afflicted with a disease or something, and one of them is hospitalized, and some go to sanitariums and various places, and and all of a sudden the healthy spouse abandons the marriage, simply because that that uh, that uh, uh, my spouse is crippled or my spouse is sick, and, and and so forth, and and at this time we're just not compatible anymore. But you see, a marriage has to be predicated upon more. Than, than, than just the bed of ease. And true love is tested in adverse situations. And that's what he's saying. And when God looks down, I believe that God occasionally allows situations to happen among the congregation and so that we can solidify ourselves not just in word, but in deed to each other. And I, could, I, I can go so far as to say if there is one element in our particular society that has caused our society to reach a point of, of, uh, uh, of uh, uh, degradation that we've reached, it's, it's because that, that neighbors don't know each other, they don't have any fidelity to each other anymore, and they, when something happens they don't really care. You know, if you're, if, if you're sick and your neighbor knocks on your door and, and says, I'd like to do your washing for you, it almost shocks the daylights out of you. You know, you want to say, what's wrong? Isn't that right? What's wrong? And so the, the, the right becomes the wrong, and the wrong becomes the right, and so values become confused. And it's hard for us then to understand exactly what is right and what is wrong. And we live in this particular society, and as a result, you see, it's easy for us to allow the situations of the world to be infiltrated into the body of Christ so that that, uh, we become very selfish with our life and selfish with, with our giving. And we cut off everybody. But oh there is a love that God loves. 
And that is when we see somebody in need, it doesn't make any difference whether it's deliverance at an altar. It doesn't make any difference whether it's bread on a table. It doesn't make any difference whether it's uh, uh, this or that. If, if we respond to that need, the world's going to look at the church and see that we're solidified by love indeed. And they're going to know, Jesus said, that you are my disciples indeed. Now Jesus said, now if you look at your brother of whom you see. I say, Jesus, John says, if you look at your brother of whom you see. And you can't love him. He said, how can you love God and whom you've never seen? He said, it's impossible. It is just totally impossible. Praise God. Now, what we want to do, we want to change the situation around and we want to talk about a love that God hates. A love that God hates. Now, I read to you the, the scripture, let's go back to it, First John 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now this word love comes from the Greek cosmos. Cosmos is the system in which Satan has set up his kingdom. And just as all kingdoms have a king... Then the cosmos has a king. And the devil is declared in the Bible as being the God of this world. The king of this world. Now Jesus is the king of all kings. And he is the Lord of all lords. But the cosmos is run directly by Satan. And the angels who fell and followed him. Now you've got to understand one thing. That the cosmos is a real live system. And you're dealing with it every day. Now, this is what he's saying. Love not the cosmos, nor the things that come out of that particular system. Now, if you love that system, and you love the things that come out of that system, he says the love of God is not in you. So if you're loving these things, this is a love that God hates. Now, I think that we need to be very, very careful as to what we accept as right and what we accept as wrong. Uh, young people who have not established certain values have problems in this particular area. Quite often I'll have a young person from the church and knock on my door. They'll come in and they will explain something. They say, well, Brother Grant, I want you to tell me what is wrong with this and what is wrong with that. You know, here at Calvary Gospel Church, we, we have a set of standards that we abide by. They're not all written down in a book. We don't pass out booklets that say, you know, 101 means and ways in which you are to defy the system of the world. But we just read the Bible and there are certain conclusions that we draw and there are certain things that, that uh, we just accept as being wrong. Now, personally, uh, uh, I stand here to declare unto you that do not know uh, our people don't go to the movies. Amen? Amen. And they don't go to professional ball games. 
Amen. Now, I know that a lot of people say, well, why? I want to take some time to explain some of these situations because I feel that this is very pertinent for you to understand. If you turn with me to Galatians 5, you see, when, when what happens quite often when we say, well, that's worldly. You know, there's nothing in the Bible that says a ball game is worldly. Is there? Is there anything in the Bible that says don't go to movies? You know, then you've got to you've got to make some type of connection someplace. You may say, "Are you telling me, Brother Grant, that all movies are wrong?" I would not tell you that all movies are wrong any more than I could, would tell you that all ball games are wrong. You know, we have an annual picnic, and one of the highlights of the annual picnic is the softball game. And I'll tell you what, I just like to play, and I wasn't able to play this past year because of a bad ankle that I have. I will assure you, I got that bad ankle from playing football. And I want to go into some of these things because I think it's very important. Now, while the Bible does not say drinking alcohol is of the world... Or alcoholic beverages. And there is some things, some things in the Bible. There are some things in the Bible that deals with alcoholic beverages. This is nailed down fairly well in the scripture. Smoking marijuana. There's nothing in the Bible that says smoking marijuana is wrong. There's nothing in the Bible that's, that says uh, experiencing LSD or cocaine or something is wrong. Is there anything in the Bible like that? You ever read that commandment? You ever read the commandment dealing with the speed? You know? There's just no commandment in the Bible that deals with speed. Now, most people understand that's wrong. I suppose that's why they hide it, see? Men love darkness better than light because their deeds are evil. But when you look in the Bible, there are certain things that you need to understand about the system of the world. All right? In Galatians 5, the, verse 17, the Bible says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Now we find this word lust that's here. And John speaks of the things that are in the world. What does he say? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And these are the avenues by which the system of the world infiltrates into the Christian. That's what he's saying. So here we find the Bible is speaking, the Apostle Paul is saying, the flesh lusteth against the spirit. Now here it means that it strives against the spirit. There's a war that's taking place inside of you. And the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary, the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. Now this is really explained in Romans 7. But if ye be led by the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. Which are these? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, uncleanness, 
lasciviousness. Now, I want to just lump all of these in, in a category. They, these basically are dealing with, with sexual sins and sexual connotations. And, and may I say this, and this may sound very, very plain to you, but it, it, is, it is indeed a fact in this present day, our world is S-E-X crazy. And it's amazing to me that, that people are talking about it uh, publicly the way they're talking about it. Articles are written and, and so forth, and, and, and everything just seemed to be sex, 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 sex. And now it's hard for you as a Christian to escape this particular thing. Because you rub shoulders every day with advertisements and such that, that are so suggestive in their nature. And the reason, one reason why that we're having so many broken marriages is because of incompatibility. And incompatibility seems to be the broad reason why that most people are getting divorces. Now one of the signs of the last day is that they will be marrying and they will be giving in marriage. That means simply means they'll be marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing and marrying and divorcing. And did you know what? It is now very hard to find a couple that has been married 15 or 20 years to the same person. Did you know that? I think our young people who are in this church need to really thank God for some of the values that are upheld, you know, as accepted standards by Calvary Gospel Church. And let me say this. When you start looking at all of this advertisement and the nude women that you see, it is very easy for a gentleman to become dissatisfied with his spouse. Because there's always somebody that looks a little bit better than the woman you're married to. And it's purposely portrayed on television screens and movie houses to be that way. If you don't think the devil knows his stuff, friend, you have another thing coming. And one of the big problems that you have with movie houses... And television sets is that the whole thing is geared around some love affair that somebody's having with somebody else. And how many movies are there on the market today that are dealing with unwholesome relationship that are transpiring between a man and somebody else's wife or, or some woman and somebody else's husband? And one of the big addictions for the average housewife is the soap operas. I'll tell you, we need some real, we need some real soap of God's word to get in and clean the mess up. Amen. Purge me with hyssop, David said. That's what he was saying. Make me clean. 
And I was reading in the paper about three years ago about soap operas, and uh, I don't know why, just it was a front page article, and it, it said something about the drama of the soap opera, and uh, I, I catch myself reading a lot of things like that. I wasn't that interested, and then I, all of a sudden I ran across a phrase that really intrigued me, and this is what it said, that the soap operas are made up only one day in advance. And the reason why they say that you do not know from day to day what your life is going to be like. And so they write the script one day in advance and they usually consider what is on before them and what will be on after them. And they compare notes from soap opera to soap opera and they try to create hypothetical situations that outdo the other. It's like the group of liars around you know, the country store. One man tells a lie, and another one tries to outlie the one lie. Now, this is what they said in the paper. And the reason why they say they do that, because they want to captivate their audiences with hypothetical situations. They went on to say, true enough, as a result, many of the hypothetical situations become real life situations in the home because we are genuinely products of that which we see and hear. Now, I would, as I said before, I do not think that there's, there, that every movie is wrong. We have showed movies right here in church. We've showed some that, quite frankly, I was embarrassed with. We said we won't show them again. We try to censor what we show, but every now and then there'll be some things that are shown that, that shouldn't be. But you, uh, let me say this. I think the level upon which you do certain things has a lot to do with how you accept it. It's like making a decision. Do you know that where you make a decision usually determines the content of that decision? Now, for an example... If somebody comes and asks you, is this right or is this wrong? And you say, you know, I think you ought to make up your own mind. And here's where you ought to make up your mind. Go and kneel down and pray. I will assure you that if you make that decision in prayer, it's going to be a whole lot different than if you make that decision counseling with some ungodly people. And I can assure you that a lot of decisions that Christians come up with and life uh, decisions, decisions that weigh heavily upon the values of, of, of that person and the character of the home, they're not made in prayer. Because when you start making decisions in prayer, let me tell you something, the content of the decision is greatly affected you will see a a conscientious element that slips into your decision-making when you start praying about things. Now, I want to leave this just momentarily. I want to talk about ball games, all right? Now, we're right in the midst of the football season, and the world, is a World Series being played right now? Is it? It's coming up, all right? It's coming up. So this is a good time for me to talk about it, see? Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with playing baseball. But 
somebody said, well, it's not the baseball, it's the competition. The truth of the matter, I don't think it's either one. I don't think it's the baseball, nor the competition. I think it's the level upon which the game is competed. And you may say, what do you mean the level upon which it's competed? Well, we go up to camp and we play softball, we play baseball, we play basketball, we play volleyball. Now, if you say volleyball is wrong, you just got to rule it all out. Now, what I'm trying to do as carefully and as conscientiously as I possibly can, I'm trying to take what the Bible says about the system of the world and I'm trying my dead level best to draw conclusions and make decisions predicated upon what the Bible says. Now, let me tell you basically what I think is wrong with the levels of football and baseball and some of the the other things that are played. Now, let's say that you go to a, a Brewer game. Well, now, first place, you've got to understand when you go there to the Brewer game that it's just one big beer party. Now, is it or is it not? Now, you folks came out of the world. When Paul speaks of, of the, the Corinthians, and he says, Now, you folks came out of the world. You understand these things. That was the appeal that he made. He said, Such were some of you, but now you're washed. Now you're clean. Now you're holy. Now you think about it. I know. I know. You see, I broke my ankle in 1957 playing high school football. Now my mother was a very conscientious Christian and she told me, she said, son, don't play high school football. I said, what's wrong with high school football? They don't drink there. They don't. But she said, here's a situation, son. She said, you know, if you excel in high school football, you know what you're going to do? You're going to play college football. Now, don't tell me they don't drink at college football games. Now, I'm just going to pass a few things on for you, and you're going to say, Brother Grant, you're so narrow-minded. Talk. I've made up my mind in prayer as to how I feel about it. It won't affect me one bit. I'm going to sleep while you're worrying about me. Okay? Now, I would like to say this. I want to be, I want to be broad-minded enough to accept what is right, and I want to be narrow-minded enough to close out the things that are wrong. And I understand that there has to be even balance in this. You know, some people are so broad-minded, their brains fall out. But I have seen some Christians that were so narrow-minded that if they fell face forward on one single pin, it would poke both eyeballs out. They were that narrow-minded that you couldn't talk to them about anything. Well, now, there is a balance involved in this. And please understand, I, I definitely believe that. I definitely believe that. You know, I do not believe that, that, that a sinner will go to heaven. And I think if, if you have sinned, then you need to repent of that sin. And the Bible says that, uh, that if we sin willfully after we come to a knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But when it comes to the things of the world, you see, there are certain things 
of the system of the world that are very difficult to draw a line on. Now, let me just explain something here. If you went to your next door neighbor's home and he had a television set of which you didn't have, and he had the television set on, and let's say he was watching a good wholesome program and he told you now that it was a good wholesome program and there's no swearing, it's based on historical facts, I could not tell you to sit right there and watch that television program that you'd be committing a sin. Now some people would tell you that. Simply because it's showed on television. Now, where I've drawn the line is, I do not believe that Christians ought to have televisions in their home. Why? Because I think there are certain things that are progressive. Now, when I say progressive, the constant daily appetite of eating the same thing over and over and over programs the mind to be worldly that leads to a life that's separated from God. Now, there are certain things that you could see on television that are wrong the first time you see them. They'll always be wrong, and it doesn't make any difference, friend, whether it's a movie house, uh, a home video uh, film that you're showing. Uh, these R-rated and X-rated things that are in the world, and now home video is a great big thing. It's going into American homes. But I'm here to tell you, I believe that stuff is wrong the first time you see it, and it's sinful for you to be watching it, period. But I can't say that about everything. I can't say that about everything. But I believe this constant looking and viewing that, that develops an appetite for the things of the world. After a while, you see, you're hooked and you don't know you're hooked. And the problem with American young people, they, just, they constantly just watch it and watch it and watch it and watch it. And you know, you've got to admit, friend, now I haven't always been a Christian, the things that are harmful and the things that are sinful are the most exciting to a carnal, cold person. Now, you know that I'm telling you the truth. When you get cold and carnal, the things that would be wholesome, they don't even make sense to you. And this is the reason why the whole system is being corrupted. See? Now, in my reading of the paper, I remember reading about three years ago where where, uh, three university... Uh, spectators, fans, they were they just went to view the game. They were charged with rape. And the reason why they were charged with rape wasn't first degree nor second degree sexual offense, but third degree. And the reason why that they charged them with rape is because that they were they were instigators in body passing. Have you ever heard of that? They just they just picked up girls and passed them up and down and up and down and and what they were doing they were handling the girls, and they had to handle them because you can't pass them without holding them, see. And besides that, they say that, that, uh, that all of this got out of hand, and, and uh, University of Wisconsin has not been noted to have great football teams. So some of the most exciting things happening at a football game, they said, is not on the field but in the stands. <clears throat> see? So... So here they're drinking beer and body passing, and some of them get charged with rape. Now, I've been among crowds like that. 
I can tell you what kind of language they use. Do you know it's, it's difficult to go to a family restaurant today without hearing somebody swear? We went down to Devil's Lake on a picnic not too long ago, and there was a gentleman next to us who didn't like what we were doing, and he pulled his pants down. Now, many of you were there. You may say, oh, my, they must have been drinking beer. Well, they probably were. We didn't go over there to find out what they were drinking. But can you believe that somebody would be so ignorant? Now, friend, that's stupidity personified. But that's the way the world is. Now, that's not an uncommon thing. There was a young man of this congregation over Mark's big boy uh, with a lady of this congregation. And they, they made an order, and the man did, and, and they didn't, the waitress said, we don't have it, and he pulled his pants down. Well, we laugh about it, but at our general conference, and the last time was in Louisville, not this time, but there was a guy who came streaking right across Pulled off all of his clothes and ran right out in amongst 20,000 people. He was not apostolic. He, th- <laughs> he thought it was funny. I mean, he really thought it was funny. Now, can, can you believe? I just can't believe that somebody would be that dumb. I mean, he needs a brain transplant. You know, there are certain things, you know, the heart can be real corrupt and you need to change your, your, your situation. But I can't feature anybody's mind being like that. Can you? Now, it says in the last days, it's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah, that the very imaginations of their mind were evil continually. And that's all they can think of. You work on your job. How many wholesome things do you hear from people? You know what, when, when ladies are working, I worked around ladies and I worked around men. And I'll, find, I'll tell you exactly what happened. When you're working around ladies, the first thing they start doing is gossiping. They, there's somebody in the group they don't like. Now that's the way ladies are. I am, I'm just telling it like it is. Now you, you, you know, uh, ladies always have this problem with talking. Just gossip, 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 gossip. You know, and men have this problem with filthy jokes. And if you get ladies and men together, then you got a bunch of gossiping, filthy joke crowd. Now that's what you have. Now I know. I've worked on public jobs. I know exactly where I'm coming from in this message. Now what happens though? When you get a little bit carnal. The first thing you do, you begin to get selfish and you look at your brothers and sister. You say, now I work hard for my money. Why should I help them? If everybody worked as hard as I had worked, then, then, then uh, they wouldn't have the problem they're having. And then, of course, you get a little bit carnal. And then what do you do? You begin to like the things that you hear. So there is a love that God loves. But, friend, there's a, there is a love that God hates. And that's a, that's a love that you develop when you get carnal and you begin to look at things like this. And the first thing that happens, and here's a way you can test where you are spiritually, you begin to look at sin as being funny and silly. 
You follow what I'm saying? You see a drunk man staggering down the road, and you <laughs> look at that old drunk. <laughs> That's so funny. It's not funny. Now, I know that I've stood up here and so, told some things tonight, and you've laughed about it. And all of us, under the particular situation in which you're hearing it, now you're going to laugh about it. But I'm talking about you really do think it's funny, just plain funny. And after a while, it's not funny, but you like it. It becomes desirous. See? Now, let me tell you what happens in the area of competition. Okay? You go to a... I used to play football, and I really wanted to play college football. I thought I was good. Uh, I really wanted to play. My mother prayed for me. Do you know what? I broke my ankle as a result of my mother's prayers, and I couldn't play my senior year. My mother is responsible for my broken ankle. You may say, do you hold it against her? Listen, I thank the Lord very often for it. Because if I didn't have the pain that I presently have, and I had not broken my ankle, only God knows where I would be today. Now you see, everything that's in the world has a spirit. There are very few things that are neutral. They have a spirit. Now, let me tell you, you you see, the spirit world is connected to your emotions. People say, we're emotional. I don't deny that. I mean, when you see this many young people, and I say young people, uh, it wasn't only young people, but basically our church is a young church. But when you see this many people jumping around, I'd be the first one to tell you, yes, we're emotional. You know, if you go away and say, man, those people over there at Calvary Gospel Church, they're so emotional. Well, I would agree with that. We really are. But you see, you cannot separate emotions from religion. And if you can, I'd like to know how. Now, I I, I would say that in some churches, yes, but I'm talking about in the Bible. You know. (laughs) Can you see an emotion? How do you see love? As it is demonstrated through deeds. Can you see joy? Only as it is demonstrated through action. Can you see fear? Only as it is demonstrated through deeds. But you can't separate it from religion. For God so loved the world that He... Did what? He gave His only begotten Son. You see, the deed proved the love. And you see, you cannot separate religion from emotion. And just as you cannot separate salvation and religion from emotion, do you know that in the the spirit world that deals with the cosmos, that the devil plays with the emotions of people? Now, you know he does that. 
And I can assure you, now listen, you've all been in professional football stadiums, most of you. You've been in college football stadiums. You've been in some high school football stadiums when things really got out of hand. And you realize that somehow in the midst of all of the emotions being displayed, that there seemed to slip into that the supernatural. What causes a team to all of a sudden get just supernatural abilities when crowds start screaming? I even know that when we used to have pep rallies, did you know that we had pep rallies to the extent that some people did some ridiculous things? I've seen guys just stand up and tear their shirts. Pep rally. And you know what we were doing? We were saying, let's raise the spirit. Now, we call it the school spirit, but in my careful analyzation of the spirit world and the emotions, I wonder if we were really talking about the school spirit. And I can assure you one thing, friend. You throw a long pass and let me run down a football field and let me grab that pass and run across a goal line and you let it be at the end of the game and you see those spectators come out there and tear down that goal post. Nothing stops them, police or nothing. And you walk off that field with a hair standing up on your back if you got hair on your back. And goosebumps all over you. And you walk into that dressing room and you take a shower and you go home and you can't, you can't sleep all night because the adrenaline's running so high and there's something very feverish that gets a hold of you. And if you don't think it isn't addicting, you don't know much about life. And so as a result, we were not taught to be prime sportsmen. But as a result, we wanted to win so badly. And we were told when you're down in the bottom of the huddle, and this guy from Kilgore, Texas, who was an all-state player, here's what I want you to do, Grant. You make sure when you tackle him, you've got your knee against his jaw and you bust him wide open. And friend, when I got up out of the pile, his face was blood. You think we're talking about the cosmos now? You see, there is a love that God hates. But you know what? I loved it. I literally loved it. But God says, I hate that kind of love. You see, you've got to know what you're dealing with. Now, I'm talking very plainly and very frankly. The devil has a very definite plotted course to destroy the human race. You see, the same thing is involved in a a lot of these illicit sexual movies and such. Really? You know, we ought to just thank the Lord for a clean fellowship. Praise God where you can shake hands with a brother or sister. You don't have any reason to doubt them, distrust them. You just take their word for things. If we had a crook among us, we would be, we would be so gullible and so naive. You could just, you could strip us. 
if you were a crook. Because we just think our fellowship is honest, clean, and wholesome. We trust each other. Praise God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There is a love that God hates. When you read through the pages of the Bible, God was so precise in His definition to Israel in their relationship with the world. He drew some very strange lines in strange places to keep them out of the darkness of the world. And preachers sometimes have to stand before congregations and draw some very definite lines in some shady and strange areas in which, which congregations sometimes and Christians will wag their heads and say, I don't know about our preacher. I really think if we'd let up, we'd have bigger crowds. We might. Folks, I want to take you to heaven. I want to go to heaven. Praise God. Praise God. And as I said, I, I, I'm not saying, you know, that, 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 that it's wrong for you to, to, to view a television program at your neighbor's home. And some of you, you may say, Brother Grant, you're really letting down. Well, if I walked over, if I walked over to Easttown and saw you watching television at Sears, you think I'd walk up to you and say, man, you dirty, rotten sinner. What in the world are you doing? You know? I've seen some Christians where the president would be on and they'd be visit their neighbors and they'd turn their back. One man told me, he said, well, you know what I did when I went to their house? He said, I just started talking. I just backed up like this and turned the television off. He said, he said you know, they never even knew I turned it off. <laughs> now, you know good and well they knew you turned that television off. <laughs> you know they knew, you know. You understand what I'm saying, though? I hope that I'm not misunderstood in this message. But what I'm saying is that there's some things that just become an obsession and the daily diet of it. It's going to ruin you. It'll kill you. It programs you to be worldly minded. There's some things, as I said before, they're sinful all the time. I really believe that. And and I think that, listen, I, I, I am very, very, very much alarmed by the number of video sets that are in, in American homes. And, of course, you could play through the television set, but you go down to any store almost and get X-rated video movies. It's a shame. I mean, it's a shame. And the cost is very nominal. And you don't have to go over to a drive-in or downtown. You can play it right in the confinement of your living room before all your family. But please understand that all of these things are designed by the leader of the cosmos to captivate your attention and to obsess you and drive you to hell. I really believe that. 
This is a love that God hates. Achan was a man who went into Jericho along with all of the Israelites. This is found in the seventh chapter of the book of Joshua. We won't spend much time there, so you don't have to turn there. But you know when they were marching around the walls of Jericho, the Bible says that, that Joshua instructed them, said, now wait, now we're going to go in and take the land. We're going to take this city. But he said, now, we don't want you to get anything that's in that city. We don't need it. We want you to leave it in there. They went in and they utterly destroyed the city. The walls fell down flat. What a great miracle. But you see, there was one materialistic-minded individual. When he got in there, the Bible says that he stole. Now, he, I mean, he picked a, he slew them like everybody else, but... But he kind of marked his spots, and he went back when they were walking out. He picked up a Babylonian garment. He picked up uh, uh, 200 shekels of silver and a golden wedge worth 20 shekels of, of, of silver. And he took it, and he buried it in his tent. Now, this is symbolical of a person burying in the confinement of their heart a desire for the world. And the Scripture tells us, That what happened when God got all of Israel out to fight the battle of Ai, they fought and they fought and they went down in defeat. And they couldn't figure out why in the world they couldn't prevail over the enemy. But you see, you can't prevail over Satan if you've got Satan's goods in your home. You can't fight against the devil if you're hiding it in your heart. You know, it's like baiting a bear trap and not expecting a bear to come by. I mean, the sole purpose for this is to lure the bear. And this is what happens sometimes for Christians. They intentionally take in things, and then when things don't go right, and the devil jumps right on the back, they say, I wonder what's wrong with my household. Everything's always gone wrong. How come the devil's always on me? And God says, here's what we're going to do. Joshua, you're not going to prevail over Ai until you go back and line up all of Israel. But God, we got three million people. God says it doesn't make any difference. I want you to line them all up, and I want you to question everybody. And when everybody was questioned, the Bible says that Achan stepped forth and says, I am the culprit. What did you do? He said, when we were over at, at Jericho, I don't know why I did it, but I took a Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a golden wedge worth 50 shekels. And he said, I took it. What would you do with it? I hid it. Where would you hide it? I hid it in my tent. Now, you wouldn't think that would be that important to God, would you? But, oh, yes, it was. Because, you see, sin cannot be controlled by human discipline. And this is the problem that you run into Very often I have people to come and say, Brother Grant, if that's all that I'm doing that's wrong, my friend, the Bible says, He that knoweth to do good and doeth not to him, it is sin. You cannot control sin. How would you like to store 
the hydrogen bomb in your basement. Especially in the family room where all the kids play. And you see, that's what you're dealing with when you try to control sin. Human discipline is prone to do evil, not good, or human nature. And you cannot discipline human nature to keep it away from sin. The only thing that takes care of human nature is the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's lift our hands and worship the Lord. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Let's stand. I've been preaching long enough. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's clap our hands. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be the name of the Lord. Oh, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Praise God. I tell you, I believe the Lord has, is ministering to us right now. Praise God. And I'll tell you one thing. If there ever was a time that you need to draw some definite lines in your life and develop strong convictions, it's in this day, in this hour. Let me say something here. Do you know you're a whole lot better off to draw lines way on the safe side than you are to draw them on the liberal side that's unsafe? Or somewhere around the middle, you really are. Because there's one thing for sure, that if you draw lines that are not stringent enough, and you open up your life to the powers of iniquity, you're no match for the devil. He'll bulldoze you down like a demolition crew. He'll do it. He'll leave you in ashes. It's just a whole lot better to draw lines on the safe side and live on the safe side. Eternity is a long time, friend. Eternity is a long time. I don't know what you want to be doing in eternity, but I want to be in the presence of God. You know, quite often I just have to tell my children, son, it's because we want to go to heaven. There are certain things I just don't feel right about. The spirit of it's not right. And we want to go to heaven. So let's make sure our lines are safe lines. Our boundaries 
are blessed of God. Let's don't do anything that's questionable. We just want to be right. We want to go to heaven. Praise God. I believe that the Spirit of the Lord is ministering to us right now and somebody would like to make a start for God and somebody would like to draw some very definite lines of conviction here tonight. The altar is open at any given time for you to come and kneel and pray. Now we want you to know that when you step out and you come and pray, we don't accept that you are lost without God. We don't accept that at all. Praise God. Special prayer request right now. Brother Jim Armstrong is at the Methodist Hospital. Emergency room. And would you pray right now? Would you do that for Brother Jim? Oh God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, glory to God. Glory to God. Touch our brother, Lord, right now and heal his body. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name. Jesus name. Lift up, Brother Jim. Take this sickness away from his body right now. We pray, O oh Lord, right now in Jesus' name. Strengthen him, Lord. Oh, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Blessed be the name of Jesus. For Lord, do you ever knee shall bow, do you ever tongue shall confess. Oh, praise God, praise God, praise God, praise God. Some are praying here at the altar. Others would like to come, I'm sure. Why don't you step out right now and come and surrender your heart to the Lord? Renew your convictions. Make a fresh your vows to God. Let the Lord know that you love Him. Praise God. All over the building people are kneeling and praying, but... Still, if you have a need and you'd like for us to help you pray, why don't you come on to the front? Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus. Blessed be the name of Jesus.
want to talk to you for a minute. Praise God. This has been a great message tonight. And I believe that God wants to do something good for somebody. It's quite a shame that Jesus Christ went to the cross, did the best that he knows how to do, or that's the best that he could do to show us how much he loves us, gives us a book full of promises that tells, that tells us that he will do certain things if we'll fit ourselves into his plan and for us to walk away from, from him without having what he has promised. And all of it's based basically on fitting ourselves into a promise, fitting ourselves into the plan of the Bible. And God would give us, the Bible says sometimes you ought to look at Leviticus 26. It says he'll, he'll bring the rain upon your crops. He'll bring, he'll keep the evil beasts out of your land, so to speak. He'll minister to you in every way that you need. If you're willing to submit tonight, God wants to minister and do something good for you. Why struggle? Because he's made it so easy. Why struggle? Because he has made the way, friend. And every man that rejects the plan of God and the word of God, he really makes his bed hard. And he puts nails in his bed. But see, all we have to do is follow God's word. See, really, all the Bible is Jesus saying, Look, I want, you, I want to be your friend, and this is how I want to be your friend. Praise God, it's so simple. And we struggle so hard. But all we need to do is submit ourselves because actually no God knows what's best. Praise God. The reason why God does not want us to love the world because the world has nothing good to offer but just something that's going to evaporate with time. Praise God. Praise God. Friend, let's bring everything to Jesus right now. Let's bring it all to Jesus. Just lay it down on the altar. Put a, put a relationship behind our words. Praise God. Something's going to hold us in times of trouble and times of hardship. Jesus is here. He wants to give every individual. There's not an individual tonight that God won't give victory if he will stick by the plan of God and love that plan. Something beautiful. Something